This is Space Time Series 22, Episode 47, for broadcast on the 26th of June, 2019. Coming up on Space Time, a new mission to intercept a comet, the warm glow of Uranus's rings, and the new evidence suggesting plate tectonics may have driven the Cambrium explosion. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. The European Space Agency has announced a new mission to study a comet. The new Comet Interceptor mission, as it's being provisionally called, will visit a pristine comet or interstellar asteroid, making its first orbit around the Sun. ESA's previous comet missions included Giotto, which visited Comet 1P Halley, and Rosetta, which encountered Comet 67P sheremov gerasimenko Both these were short-period comets, making regular visits to the inner solar system. Halley swoops past the Sun roughly every 76 years, while sheremov gerasimenko completes its orbit of the inner solar system every six and a half years. The thing is, these short-period comets, with orbital periods of less than 200 years, have approached the Sun many times during their journeys through the solar system. And as a consequence, they've undergone significant changes, with their material being cooked up by the Sun's radiation. And that's where the new Comet Interceptor mission is different. It'll comprise three spacecraft targeting a comet or interstellar object visiting the inner solar system for the first time, perhaps from the vast Oort cloud that's thought to surround the outer reaches of the Sun's realm. As such, the comet will contain material which hasn't undergone much processing since the birth of the Sun and its planets 4.6 billion years ago. The mission will therefore offer a new insight into the evolution of comets as they migrate inwards from the periphery of the solar system. The idea is to undertake a flyby of the target as it approaches the orbit of Earth. Its three spacecraft will perform simultaneous observations from multiple points around the comet, creating a three-dimensional profile of a dynamically new object containing unprocessed material surviving from the very dawn of the solar system. Comet Interceptor is slated to launch in 2028 together with the agency's exoplanet studying Ariel spacecraft. It'll fly to the Sun-Earth Lagrange 2 position, which is about 1.5 million kilometres behind the Earth as viewed from the Sun. This is one of those Lagrangian gravitational wells, which allow the spacecraft to hold position in relation to the Earth as the Earth orbits around the Sun. Comet Interceptor will then just sit there and wait for a suitable target to come along. And once the target's been identified, the spacecraft will be sent to intercept it. As it closes in on its target, it'll separate into three independent probes, each equipped with complementary science payloads providing different perspectives of the comet's nucleus and its gas, dust and plasma environment. Now, we've been using the term comet in this story, but another potential target would be an interstellar visitor from another star system, like the famed Oumuamua, which flew past the Sun in its highly inclined orbit back in 2017. Studying one of these interstellar objects would provide scientists with a unique opportunity to explore how a comet-like body forms and evolves in another star system. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A new study of the rings of Uranus have found them to have a temperature of just 77 degrees above absolute zero, the boiling point of liquid nitrogen. 
The observations were carried out by the European Southern Observatory using both its VLT, or Very Large Telescope, and ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, both located in the high Andean deserts of Chile. It's the first time astronomers have measured the warm glow of Uranus's rings using ground-based telescopes. This thermal glow provides astronomers with a new window under the rings, which have been seen only because they reflect a little light in the visible or optical range and in the near-infrared. The new observations have also confirmed that Uranus's brightest and densest ring, known as the Epsilon ring, is composed primarily of chunks of rock the size of golf balls or larger. And that's very different from the ring systems of planets such as Saturn, whose spectacularly beautiful rings are mainly ice, and range in size from micron-sized dust grains in the innermost D-ring to tens of metres in size in the main rings. In fact, we now know that all the outer planets of the solar system have rings. Jupiter's rings contain mostly small micron-sized particles, a micron being just a thousandth of a millimetre. And Uranus's twin ice giant Neptune also has rings, which are mostly composed of fine dust. Even Uranus itself has broad sheets of dust between its narrow main rings. One of the study's authors, Edward Malter, says scientists already knew the Epsilon ring was a bit weird because it lacked the smaller particles. Something has either been sweeping the smaller bits out or causing it to quickly clump together into larger pieces. The new observations, reported in the Astronomical Journal, are a step towards understanding the ring's composition and whether all the rings come from the same material source or whether they're different for each ring. The rings could be former asteroids captured by the planet's gravity, remnants of moons that crashed into one another and shattered, the remains of moons torn apart by Uranus's Roche limit when they got too close to the planet, or debris remaining from the time of the ice giant's formation 4.6 billion years ago. The rings of Uranus are compositionally very different from Saturn's main ring, with a much lower optical and infrared reflectivity, or albedo. Malta says they're as dark as charcoal and extremely narrow compared to the rings of Saturn. The widest, the Epsilon ring, varies from 20 to 100 kilometres across, whereas Saturn's rings range from hundreds to tens of thousands of kilometres wide. The lack of dust-sized particles in Uranus's main rings was first noted when Voyager 2 flew past the planet back in 1986 and photographed them for the first time. However, the spacecraft was unable to measure the temperature of the rings. So far, astronomers have counted a total of 13 rings around the planet, some with bands of dust between them. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. The world is gearing up to celebrate what is arguably the most significant date in human history, the day man set foot on the surface of another world for the first time. It was the 20th of July 1969 as Neil Armstrong stepped off the lunar excursion module and uttered those immortal words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The crew of Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, had just made history, expanding the reach of humans beyond what was previously thought possible. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Four minutes and counting, we are goal for Apollo 11. We'll be coming up in the automatic sequence about 10 or 15 seconds from this time. The vehicle starting to pressurize as far as the propellant tanks are concerned, 
and all is still go as we monitor our status for it. Firing command coming in now. We're on an automatic sequence as the master computer supervises hundreds of events occurring over these last few minutes. Two minutes, ten seconds, and counting. Oxidizer tanks in the second and third stages now have pressurized. T-minus one minute, 35 seconds. The third stage completely pressurized. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We passed T-minus 60. 55 seconds and counting. 40 seconds away from the Apollo 11 liftoff. All the second stage tanks now pressurized. 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. 60 seconds. Lights on. Down two and a half. Picking up some dust. City feet. Two and a half down. Great shadow. Four forward. Drifting to the right a little. Down and a half. 30 seconds. Contact light. Okay. Engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control both auto. Descent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twain. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. I'm going to step off the limb. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Their efforts on that unforgettable day were very much achieved on the shoulders of giants. Project Apollo, together with the earlier Mercury and Gemini missions, which paved the way for that momentous event, provided the United States, and for that matter the rest of the free world who had participated, with an important victory in the Cold War against the Soviet Union and communism, which only seven years earlier had threatened to destroy humanity in the Cuban Missile Crisis. For both sides, the space race was simply a test of military technological superiority, a fight for the ultimate high ground. It was a race first started by the Nazis in World War II with their V-2 rocket vengeance weapon, the first man-made objects to reach space. And for a long time, it was a race the Soviet Union was winning. After all, in 1957, they became the first to place a satellite into orbit with the launch of Sputnik. They were also the first to place a human in orbit with Yuri Gagarin aboard Vostok 1 in 1961. And in 1965, Soviet cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first man to carry out a spacewalk. It seemed while the West was engaging in flower power and hippie music, the communist collective was outperforming the decadent democracies of the West. But what the world didn't know back then was that in most cases, Moscow's victories were due more to an overly cautious approach by the United States rather than any lack of technology. And those solid foundations were proven justified as America surpassed the Soviets carrying out the first rendezvous and docking in space, followed by the start of manned missions beyond Earth orbit to the moon. The death of Russian rocket genius Sergei Korolev in 1966 added to Moscow's miseries. The repeated failure of the Soviet Union's N-1 moon rocket, counterpart to America's mighty Saturn V, sealed the fate of Moscow's lunar ambitions. Of course, celebrations marking the Apollo 11 landing are being carried out not just in the United States, but around the world, especially in those countries like Australia, which played a small part in making the achievement possible. 
And as part of those celebrations, Sydney's Powerhouse Museum will be running a special exhibition from June the 29th with over 200 objects on display. Apollo 11 exhibition curator, astronomer Dr Sarah Reeves, says the event will explore a defining moment in history, as well as its lasting impact on science, society and design. We've got a a new exhibition opening to celebrate the 50th anniversary uh, of this momentous occasion and we're really excited. We've got over 200 objects going to be on display, so we've got about... 50 kind of small and large objects, everything from a sample of moon rock all the way up to full-scale replicas of various spacecraft. And on top of that, we've also got about 150 pieces of memorabilia, so commemorative postcards, envelopes, all the kinds of things that capture just how excited and involved the public were in this event and and following the, the race to the moon. It's hard to relate to it for a modern audience who weren't there at the time, and certainly the entire Apollo program was a bit like that. The engineering and scientific endeavours achieved out of that mission have changed our view of the entire universe. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was kind of an unparalleled time in almost like the celebrity status that science had. Science was adventure, science was exciting. And there's rarely been a time, I think, before or since that science has taken on that status. And yeah, the technological developments that made it all possible were absolutely at the centre of all of that. I'm sure that everyone putting together an exhibition has their favourite pieces. What are yours? Uh, I've, I've got a few. Uh, choosing my favourite objects is a little bit try- like trying to choose your favourite child, I suspect. One of the ones I'm most excited about is so we've got a full-size replica of the Friendship 7 Mercury capsule. So that was the spacecraft that took John Glenn to become the first American in orbit. So part of the Mercury program that was one of the precursors to the Apollo project. That spacecraft, when it's fully constructed, stands about eight metres tall. It's really impressive to see, and we've actually built a special viewing platform so that uh, visitors to the exhibition can stand up and peek inside what would have been the crew hatch, but we have that covered with perspex so you can see the interior and the cramped position that the astronaut would have sat in. So that's definitely one that I'm really excited about. Another that I'm, I'm really keen for people to see and understand is something called the, we call it the Apollo feed horn. So it was actually the conical shaped piece of metal. It's quite unusual to see, but it's actually what sat at the apex of the Parkes radio telescope. One of the Australian dishes was involved in receiving the live TV footage of the, the moonwalk broadcast. So the radio waves come in, they basically reflect off the curved surface of the dish and up to this thing uh, called the feed horn, which if you see pictures of the dish, it's kind of like at the top of the tripod and from there the signal then travels by cable down one of those tripod legs and into the control room where the receiver sat and then was sent to Sydney for broadcast to Australia and the rest of the world and one of the cool things about our involvement in this part of broadcasting the moonwalk is we actually got to see it about 300 seconds before the rest of the world because from Sydney it had to bounce up to satellite and back down to Houston for broadcast to the rest of the world but we got to see it first. Australia's great claim to fame from the Apollo era. Absolutely.
Every time I go to the Powerhouse Museum, and I, I go there a fair bit, I, I was there just the other week for the Star Wars exhibition, and uh, one of the things I always try to do when I get to the museum is go to the standard space exhibition that Powerhouse has, because there's this lovely little rock there. It's uh, it's part of the Murchison meteorite, which is a carbonaceous chondrite meteorite which fell to Earth in Victoria, near Murchison, and it opened up a new understanding of the outer solar system. It's something that, from an astronomy point of view, is really hard to top, unless you've got a moon rock and I believe you've got one in the exhibition. We we do. We're very fortunate to have uh, a long-term loan from NASA a piece of moon rock weighing 89 grams which is pretty big as far as moon rock samples come and we were looking into the scientific research on this sample as we prepared for the exhibition and in fact this moon rock sample has been on display in our space gallery for many years uh, and it said that it was 3.9 billion years old but we've now been able to confirm it's actually even older than we thought it's 4 billion years old and that makes it older than actually most of the rocks on Earth so it's really a very unique thing to be able to see to see an actual piece of the moon here on Earth in our gallery is incredibly exciting. Four billion years, how did we arrive at the age and I guess the other question is what was it before that? I'm assuming it was formed then from an asteroid collision on the lunar surface or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the type of moon rock is, is, I believe it's called brescia and it's basically formed when a meteorite impacts on the surface of the moon. We know that the moon is covered in craters where asteroids and, and pieces of rock have hit it. and this type of rock is formed basically when bits of dust and stuff on the surface of the moon basically fuse together in the heat caused by an impact like that. That's Dr Sarah Reeves, curator of the Apollo 11 exhibition, which starts this Saturday at Sydney's Powerhouse Museum. This is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. The quest to discover what drove one of the most important evolutionary events in the history of life on Earth has taken a new fascinating twist. A team of scientists have given a fresh insight into what may have driven the Cambrian explosion, a period of rapid expansion of different forms of animal life on Earth that occurred over 500 million years ago. While a number of theories have been put forward to try and explain this landmark period, the most creditable, so far at least, is that it was fueled by a significant rise in atmospheric oxygen levels, which allowed a wide variety of animals to thrive. A new study reported in the journal Nature Communications suggests that such a rise in oxygen levels may have been the result of extraordinary changes in global plate tectonics. During the formation of the supercontinent Gondwana, there was a major increase in continental arc volcanism. Chains of volcanoes were formed, often thousands of kilometres long, where continental and oceanic plates collided. This dramatic increase in volcanism led to increased degassing of carbon dioxide from ancient subducted sedimentary rocks. The study's lead author, Josh Williams from the University of Exeter, says this volcanism could have led to an increase in atmospheric CO2 and the warming of the planet, which in turn, he says, could have amplified the weathering of continental rocks, which then supplied the nutrient phosphorus to the ocean to drive photosynthesis and increase oxygen production. Williams and colleagues developed a sophisticated biogeochemical model in order to show the first quantification of changes in atmospheric oxygen levels just prior to this explosion of life. One of the great dilemmas, originally recognised by Charles Darwin, is why complex life, in the form of fossil animals, appeared so abruptly in what's now known as the Cambrian Explosion. While many studies have suggested this was linked to a rise in oxygen levels, there's never been a clear cause for such a rise. And that's where this new hypothesis comes in. 
It shows a marked rise in oxygen levels due to changes in plate tectonic activity to about a quarter of the level in today's atmosphere, in the process reaching the critical levels needed for the Cambrian explosion to occur. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. An Ariane 5 rocket is carried to telecommunication satellites in a geostationary transfer orbit. Ariane Space Flight VA-248 lasted off from the European Space Agency's spaceport in French Guiana. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, unité, top. Allumage moteur vulcan. Allumage UAP et top décollage. Les paramètres bons sont conformes à l'attendu. 43 local time and right on time, Ariane 5 began her mission roaring off from the ground here in French Guiana with a lot of fire going up through the thin cloud layer. We had so much rain today, we didn't think we'd have any visibility at all. But look at her go. She's carrying two satellites, two new telecom satellites, the two boosters providing 90, that's 90% of our thrust right now, propelling the launcher along her trajectory at an ever higher velocity. 775 tons at liftoff. And to get that sort of mass off the ground, you need a lot of push. She's burning five tons of fuel every second. That's two and a half tons of fuel every second in each booster. And the core stage burning another 300 kilos of fuel per second. Into the blue sky she goes. Ariane 5 now following the program in the onboard computer, which gives all the orders, including stage separations, which we'll soon begin to see in about 20 seconds. We're in the first of four flight phases. Right now, the first flight phase, the single first stage engine and the two boosters are burning another about uh, 12 seconds for them and they will be the first to be extinguished and you'll hear that from the DDO the two boosters falling away on either side and continuing on her way the first flight phase using both cryogenic and storable propellant cryogenic in the main stage and storable propellant in the boosters who have done their job their uh, pros and cons to each cryogenic propulsion offers certain advantages as uh, getting us off uh, the ground and it is more precise the DDO has confirmed a course separation of the two boosters. Boosters will fall away about 500 uh, kilometers from shore into a protected area. Next up, fairing separation. Two halves of the fairing falling away from the mothership. Fairing separation coming at 112 kilometers up, roughly, because we're out of the Earth's atmosphere. Our altitude, 140 kilometers, approaching three kilometers per second. Now, the speed we need to separate a satellite between eight and nine kilometers per second, roughly, because it's roughly the speed of the uh, turning Earth. Ariane Space is part of Europe's space effort, which is a three-way affair among east of the European Space Agency, the French Space Agency, CNES, and Ariane Space. Ariane Space operating the family of launchers and marketing the launch services of the Ariane program, and the Ariane program, I should say. ESA funding new programs, and CNES overseeing coordination of all space-space operation. Guyana Space Center, the world's only dedicated commercial space base, where Ariane Space operating the launcher family, Ariane 5, soon to be Ariane 6, Soyuz and Vega, soon to be the updated Vega C, Vega C4 consolidated. First to be deployed was the 6,330 kilogram AT&T Direct TV 16 telecommunications satellite. Built by Airbus Defence and Space, it was released 27 minutes after liftoff. 
It'll be positioned 36,000 kilometers above the equator, providing broadband services covering the continental United States, Alaska, Hawaii and Puerto Rico. It was followed six minutes later by the deployment of the 3,400kg space systems the Royal built Utilsat 7C. Once in position, its footprint will cover Africa, Europe, the Middle East and Turkey. Both spacecraft carry enough fuel to remain operational for at least 15 years. The launch was the 104th flight of an Ariane 5 and the second Ariane 5 mission this year. And time now to take a brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study suggests eating yogurt could help men avoid bowel cancer. A report in the journal Gut has found eating two or more weekly servings of yogurt may help men to lower the risk of developing abnormal growths which precede the development of bowel cancer. To reach their conclusion, scientists examined the diets of 32,606 men. Compared with men who didn't eat yogurt, those who ate two or more servings a week were 19% less likely to develop abnormal growths and 26% less likely to develop growths that were highly likely to become cancerous. Well, a bit of good news for parents now. A new study claims sexually active Australian high school kids tend to engage in responsible sexual behaviour. The nationwide survey by La Trobe University looked at 6,327 students aged 16 to 18 in government, Catholic and independent schools from each state and territory, finding 47% of them had engaged in sexual intercourse. The study showed that 34% of 16-year-olds had engaged in sex, 46% of 17-year-olds and 56% of 18-year-olds. It also found 35% of students were attracted to same or both genders. 66% of students had sex at home, 65% with a boyfriend or girlfriend, 62% often or always used a condom, and 86% engaged in coitus with somebody of about the same age. 62% of sexually active students had only had one partner in the past year. And 89% of those who were not yet sexually active did not regret their decision not to have sex yet. Researchers found students have a good knowledge of sexual health, are behaving responsibly, and are actively seeking out trusted and reliable sources of information. Family doctors were considered the most trusted source of information, with 89% of kids getting sexual information this way, while 60% of kids talked about it with their mums. 71% were confident talking about sexual health with female friends. 80% answered questions about HIV correctly, indicating a generally high awareness. 79% of students access information about sexual health online. That's almost double the 2013 figure, which was 44%. And 77% of kids discussed sexual health before engaging in sex. A new study has confirmed that permafrost across the Canadian Arctic is thawing 70 years earlier than previous climate change predictions had indicated. The findings are based on observations taken by teams of scientists from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. The observations reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters suggest the local climate is now warmer than at any time in the past 5,000 years. The authors say they were astounded to see how quickly a succession of unusually hot summers had destabilized the upper layers of giant subterranean ice blocks that had remained frozen solid for millennia. They say it's a sign that the global climate change crisis is accelerating even faster than scientists feared. The largest plant survey ever undertaken has revealed alarming extinction rates. The findings reported in the journal Nature Ecology and Evolution show that Earth's seed plants are disappearing 500 times faster than they would without human influence. 
Researchers analyzed a global data set of more than 330,000 species and found 571 are presumed extinct since they were recorded in Carl Linnae's Compendium Species Planetarium in 1753. To make matters worse, scientists say the number of recorded extinctions is an underestimate of the real tally, and it doesn't count species that are already extinct in the wild or whose populations are simply too small to survive. Well, a bit of good news now, and it seems most people, at least in affluent nations, are fairly honest when it comes to returning lost wallets. The study, covering 355 cities across 40 countries and involving some 17,000 wallets, found most people will return a lost wallet that they have found. And interestingly, the more money in the wallet, the greater the likelihood of it being returned. Now, each of these specially lost wallets contained a grocery list, a key, and some business cards with a local-sounding man's name, phone number, and email address. Some of the wallets had no money in them, while others held $13.45, or the equivalent buying power in local currency. On average, 40% of wallets with no money in them were reported found, compared with 51% of wallets that contained some money. The results varied from country to country, Denmark and Switzerland being the most honest, having return rates of around 80%. Australia was not quite so honest, but still managed a respectable 70%, just ahead of Russia on 60 and the United States on 57% of lost wallets containing cash returned. Return rates in less affluent countries like India, South Africa and Chile were only around 40%, while return rates in Kenya and China only reached around 20%. The authors then conducted a second round of tests in the United States, Britain and Poland using almost 3,000 wallets containing around $94 each, finding return rates in all three nations had increased to an average of 72%. You can read the study in full in the journal Science. New privacy features and energy-saving dark mode and performance updates will be among the highlights of Apple's new iOS 13 iPhone operating system expected to be launched in September. And this time, there'll be a separate, unique operating system for your iPad as well, known as iPad OS. With more, we're joined by Alex Horosh from whistleout.com.au. So iOS 13 is the next major version of Apple's iPhone operating system. We're expecting it to roll out in September uh, alongside the next iPhones. But Apple's already detailed a few of the features that we can expect. The most noticeable feature will be a dark mode, which lets you kind of swap your iPhone's traditionally bright white color scheme for a mostly black interface. So, you know, there's some suggestions that a dark mode is a little bit easier on the eyes and it looks kind of cool. It looks very cool. Yeah, it looks great and I can't actually wait to try it out. But if you've got an iPhone with an OLED display, which is like an iPhone 10, an iPhone 10s, or an iPhone 10s Mac, switching on dark mode could actually help reduce power consumption because on an OLED display, pixels aren't actually lit up on the screen unless they're showing a color. So if it's just displaying black, those individual pixels actually aren't on. So obviously this depends on whether or not an app actually has a true black or just a dark black or like a dark gray, but you know, it could be a boon for battery life. One of the other major, I guess, less noticeable features in iOS 13 will be a whole host of privacy improvements. One of the major ones relates to location. So if an app requires your location, you can choose to share it just once. 
So like, for example, if you're you rather than just letting it always access it whenever you open the app, for example, a mapping app. And Apple is also planning on rolling out a sign-in with Apple button that lets you use your Apple ID to register new accounts with apps, websites, and services. This is kind of similar to what we've got with like, signing with Facebook and signing with Google. But Apple is kind of pitching it as a more privacy-focused version of this. So you pretty much go to create a new account without revealing any personal information. Some services will still want your name and your email, but signing with Apple will actually let you hide your email address. And Apple will create a unique private email address that will forward the emails from that service to your actual email address without letting that company know your actual email address. Each app and service you sign up for will get its own random email address, which can then be disabled at any time. The sign-in with Apple will also work on the web, so it's not just tied to your iPhone. And it's quite interesting because Apple kind of really wants developers to use this. So as part of new App Store rules, if you're using sign in with Google or sign in with Facebook in your app, you also need to include sign in with Apple. There's also really interesting changes coming to iPad. So while iPads have traditionally also run iOS, Apple was kind of splintering off iOS into a new version for a few extra features for iPad called iPad OS, really creative name. The home screen's got a tighter grid layout, so you can actually fit more iPhones on it. You'll be able to put widgets onto your home screen as well. There's a whole heap of new multitasking gestures that will let you use more apps at once and kind of drag and drop apps side by side and kind of even pull out individual components from an app into kind of a side by side view. Like for example, if you're writing a new email in mail, you'll be able to pull out the kind of compose box and still have your inbox side by side. But also the better support for USB thumb drives and SD cards, so you can actually directly access documents and move documents back across. You'll be able to use your iPad as a second display for your Mac. And there's even mouse support. So Apple is really pushing the iPad to be more and more computer-like. And again, we're expecting iPad OS to kind of come out sometime in September. That's Alex Horosh from whistleout.com.au. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audio Boom, from spacetimewithstuartgary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 